Hey listeners, this is Marsha Epstein in Lawrence, Kansas, and this is Talk With Me. And it is with, so sometimes you hear me too much, sorry about that. This is my chance to get to meet and showcase people who are producing arts, creating arts, creating art events, being out in the public, um, doing cool things, because I'm a huge believer that art is an important way for us to connect with people. It's an important thing to sometimes make us laugh, sometimes make us cry. It's a way sometimes we get messages that we didn't even know we needed, you know? It's like, wow, that poet, that painter, that dance really touched me in a way because it resonates with something in my own experience. That's the kind of stuff I love. I loved when I started talking to artists and spontaneously it would come up this saved my life, you know, people being able to create and express and clarify and then sometimes share with other people. It's cool stuff, folks. It's really cool stuff. And it makes me want to say, you know, nationally, there's this wonderful thing that is not a government thing, but it's called the U.S. Department of Arts and Culture. Go online to usdac.us and you'll get a sense for this is this national thing encouraging people wherever you are to get involved with activities that really are a way for art to be present and visible and part of social justice and economic justice and fun, all kinds of things, these values. I love USDAC. Um, I was just looking at my inbox, and in January, once again, there will be these things called story circles to create a poetic state of the union, the people's state of the union. You'll find different kinds of toolkits, ways of getting involved. Um, and no, I don't get paid to talk about this. I just so believe in it um, that for whatever combinations of reasons, I needed to say it out loud right now. I also, like I mentioned, I, I really believe in art in all kinds of ways. And, and I do have this sense of I really, really appreciate being able to talk to people about creating their art. It means a lot to me as a person who's a mental health social worker. I certainly have added tools about writing into things that I encourage people to do. Got two books in front of me. One that, that relate to that one is it's called An Axe for the Frozen Sea. And it's by Rob Plath, who is a painter and a photographer and a poet and a novelist, um, a creative person who's also teaching in the New York area. And then does this cool thing, Walking Pitbulls. So I need to stop going on and say, I'm really thankful to my friend Todd Cirillo, who's in New York, excuse me, not in New York, Rob's in New York, who's in New Orleans, who said, hey, I think a great guest for your show would be Megan Burns. And so finally, I'm saying, welcome, Megan Burns. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, you for having welcome. me. I'm glad to do this. You know, when we, we emailed, um, you certainly shared a lot of things that are ways that we connect, and I'm not going to spill the beans on that right now. Um, but for, for starters, as I tend to do, I'd love for you to introduce yourself a bit to our audience. Okay. Uh, my name is Megan Burns. I am a poet in New Orleans where I also grew up. I run a small press publishing uh, company here in New Orleans called Trembling Pillow Press. 
and we publish full-length poetry collections. I believe we have about 30 titles now. I've been doing that for over a decade. Wow. I also run, yeah, I run a reading series as well. Uh, that's a weekly reading series in the Bywater section of New Orleans, which is near the French Quarter. And we feature poets mostly, although we do a monthly fiction writing uh, reading as well. And I also recently uh, got involved uh, with co-directing, along with publisher Bill Lavender, the New Orleans Poetry Festival, which is an annual three-day event full of panels, workshops, featured writers from nationally and internationally. And we will be going into our third year in 2018. That's exciting. Yeah, it's very exciting. Mark Statman is one of the poets who's been on my show. And... I think when we did it this year, it was right before the festival. He was going to be coming from Oaxaca, Mexico, up to New Orleans to to do those events, which is really cool. He did, and he was yeah. a translator. We had some poets from Uruguay who came uh-huh. and read for us, and he did. He had translated a book that Bill Lavender published, Made uh-huh. in America, by Martin uh, Barros, and he, you know, he did some translations so people in New Orleans got to hear the bilingual readings. It was really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. He's amazing. And then uh, Ralph Adamo. Ralph Adamo and I work on a project each year where we are, I don't think it's supposed to be a secret. Wow, what the heck? Where we are some of the judges for a writing contest, which is for people who have the experience of surviving suicide thoughts and attempts who write um, true pieces um, to share their stories and hope. And it's a contest through the professional organization that I'm part of, the American Association of Suicidology. So it's it's interesting how these little things cross paths. And, yeah. And yeah. I and did not. He, I did not know that. I know Ralph very yeah. well. Yeah, he was involved yeah. with the festival as well. He presented a panel yeah. on uh, Xavier Review, the journal that he edits and, and publishes at Xavier University. Yeah. Um, but I did. I did not know that facet of his life. That's very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think when, when we've talked about it, he didn't remember how he got involved, but it's something that he does. And so it was that's like this cool connection. And then before mm-hmm. we were recording, you know, you, you mentioned that, yes, indeed, you had read in Lawrence, Kansas at the Tap Room for the Tap Room Poetry Series that is curated by Megan Kaminsky and Jim McCrary. So these these connections we didn't even know about that are that are there, which is... It is. It is the small village of poetry. (laughs) I always tell people my Lawrence, Kansas reading was a first stop before I went to Chicago when my last book came out. And uh, Lawrence, Kansas bought all my books. And by the time I got to Chicago, I didn't have any more books. So I always tell people, people in Lawrence buy books. It's wonderful. Go there, read. They actually, they purchase things. That is great. I'm glad to hear that. You know, because I think... I, I I know that people say, well, you know, I can read stuff online. You know, readings typically don't have any kind of a fee to go to that event. It's like, yeah, but think about it. When you buy the book, one, you get to reread that book and hear that author's voice and think about those words and sometimes be surprised at how the words look on the page compared to what you thought that you were hearing words that sound similar and you realize, oh, that isn't even what that was, you know? And there's, there are these surprises. And 
So there's the the personal part of, you know, I have these books and this is really cool. I get to read them when I want to. There's this other part, which is this is something we do to support art is that we make the purchases that we can. And and I, I say that so often, people probably kind of laugh when I talk about that. And and periodically on the Talk With Me page, I, I post a uh, picture of some of the books that are overflowing the area of, of my desk, bookshelf, poet stuff that that is there that, you know, the people from all over. And, and, and I love, I don't love things in general, but I do love little poetry books. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, so you are in New Orleans, you're doing a lot for poetry in terms of with publishing and, and readings that you host, that you organize and being an organizer for the New Orleans Poetry Festival. You know, that, that is big stuff. And, and obviously you are writing and being published Um, places at the same time. Yes. It's a lot. Um, (laughs) We have a great, we have a great community here in New Orleans. I mean, I've always felt very supported and held by the community and able to be very experimental and to try a lot of different things. And it's been a joy to be able to support others and have hold space for them to be able to do their work. Uh-huh. And I think the poetry festival for both Bill Lavender and I was just this opportunity to allow more people to come to New Orleans and see our personal community to see uh-huh. what we do here and also give New Orleanians a chance to be exposed to more national and international poetries. Uh-huh. And so that's been just an amazing experience of cultural exchange and, and just, you know, bringing more energy and new energy into the community. It's, yeah. it's very vital. I think all the time, yeah. making those connections, people collaborating and just, yeah. It's like the more you feed the beast, it's just it's just well fed. It keeps yes. running really well. It's yes. great. Yes. And and one of the things I'm fascinated about is the generational part of it as well, that that there are people that you and I both have met, I'm, I'm you know, I know that there are who who are inspired by the beats in the sixties who are still writing and also formally or informally mentoring other generations of writers, you know, mm-hmm. I think about our mutual friend, Todd Cirillo being connected to Bill Gaynor, who's up in Northern California. His uh, just this, he's an amazing writer. He, he just has this new book called, this just kind of sums him up to me, the mysterious book of old man poems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's delightful to to hear the influences and the relationships. And, and I do want to give a shout out. I think this is interesting that you said the New Orleans Festival, Poetry Festival, you've been doing this for three years. And there's this thing in Kansas City that started three years ago also, the Kansas City Poetry Throwdown, which similarly is bringing in people from lots of different parts of the country, you know, coast to coast and in the middle and, and, you know, young street poets, as well as people like Bill and George Wallace from New York, who've been writing for decades. And so this cool stuff is happening. And, and I love it. I love it in part because of the connection of the people connecting with each other. You know, we're not in isolation. Yeah. We need to be connected and man, oh man, especially in the past year, there's so much need for good people to be connected and doing things and putting that goodness out in the world. So it, it's really um, exciting. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I went to graduate school at Naropa University, and they have a oh. summer program there, the summer writing program. And it's this intensive, you know, it just immersion program of just all day of panels and writings and workshops. And then night, at the night, you know, there's featured readings from these prominent writers from all over the country. And I think I learned during those very intense summers <laughs> that it fills your cup for the rest of life. Because uh-huh. the, the reality is that most poets, you know, we have to we have to live regular life. <laughs> we can't just make a living yeah. being poets, most of us. And so you have to go back into your life and you have to you know, raise your families and you have to go to your jobs and you pay your bills and you do all of these things. And in your day-to-day life, there may not be that support and yeah. that area for you to really be enriched and filled with just the joy of being a writer, being a poet and doing that work or can be very lonely and isolating. And uh-huh. so creating the Poetry Fest for me, again, was mimicking that experience that I had at Naropa, which is this, you know, several days of immersion where you're around people who understand your work, yeah. who value the work that you do. You know, poetry is really out, outside still of the capitalist sphere of being a way to, to really make a ton of money. And yeah. so you have to find real value in it as just an art form. Yes. So it's, it's a good way for, I mean, I started writing my, the book that I have coming out in April as soon as the first poetry festival ended mm-hmm. in 2016, I was so inspired. I just sat down and I just started writing. And within like a year, I had like produced this entire book. <laughs> it was the That's fastest amazing. the book had ever come out of me. And, and I think that it has that power when you're really, really just inspired and you feed on that energy that uh-huh. people bring who really believe in what they do. Yeah. And, and that just propels you to like, you just want to be in the game. You want to do it. You want. You just want to keep doing it. Yeah, that's cool. It, it makes me think, and I'm I'm bad about remembering who said what, but I remember reading uh, uh, something probably from Brain Pickings or you know one of those kinds of e newsletters that somebody was saying. You know, people ask me how to discover one's poetic voice, and my answer is expose yourself to other poets, <laughs> you know, that, mm-hmm. that you need to hear and read lots of people's work. It's not like, you know, hunker down and do this whole internal thing. It's really about paying attention to what's around you. And, and I, I had a conversation with a poet yesterday. And, you know, one of the things we both admitted is we have some friends who are poets who we really like as people, but don't necessarily love their work, you know, that, that it can be that too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that, you know, there are lots of different types of writing styles, tones. I don't know how to describe it. I don't have the language. Um, for that. <laughs> but, but, but there is that interesting thing about connecting sometimes poets who connect whose work really isn't so similar or maybe even so pleasing to each other, but they really like each other and they love poetry and they're good friends. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there's a type of poet brain that, that exists just like there is in any genre or any kind of thing that people are passionately, you know, drawn to. And I think the poet brain in and of itself is one that just has an attention to language that's very specific and also Uh an attention to the world around them and a deep reflection on self and just bearing witness and then, and, in, and really interested in learning a lot. And that mm-hmm. combination makes for an interesting brain. And when you put poets together, even if they write very differently, they still see the world in this similar way. And it's a way of processing the world through language, 
that I think uh-huh. feels very comfortable, regardless of, uh-huh. you know, how you write or what kind of style you write, because you process the world around you kind of the way I do. We're uh-huh. going to have this similarity and this kind of this hunger for understanding the world through language, which, uh-huh. you know, is it may be different than how an artist or a dancer or, you know, someone who does engineering might process their world. Yeah. And so there's yes. just that commonality, you know, it's just like yes. language is so integral to being a poet that just that, that yeah. love of language and what it can and, and can't do. <laughs> I think uh-huh. the poets are always railing against, you know, how it how it's able to capture so much for us and contain so much. And then at the same time, also the the great failure of language to also yes. really capture anything. <laughs> it's yes. just this conundrum that poets sit in all the time. Yes, yes. And as you say that, so see, I have this very specific language need. I volunteer with a program that's part of the international program called the Girls Rock Camp Alliance. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the word girl is the unfortunate part of it because the truth is it's, a, it's a, a, an idea of bringing together, starting with youth, um, typically middle-aged and high school-aged youth, who are not cisgender males. Um, so trans kids and not gender nonconforming kids and and girl kids who identify as girl kids, you know, but mm-hmm. there, we don't have any word that that talks about that. You know, there's not any word, you know, without going into this long description, there's no there's no word that is everybody buddy other than cisgender male. And, and the reason that that's relevant in this context of this this music experience is clearing space, you know, making space where people aren't overshadowed by male privilege, where even our wonderful male friends often, as I say, take up all the air in the room and they don't realize it and they don't yet know how to not do it. And so in, in this music thing, this, it's this cool model of having week-long camps for kids to, who, who probably never held an instrument and some who have. They learn to play, they work together, they sign to bands, they write a song, they perform publicly, and, and they get all this, this wonderful personal growth and friendships and benefits of different kinds. It's such a powerful experience, but we don't have the right word for it. Girls is not the right word. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, I, I think that's, I think that's at the root of a lot of what poets kind of are always struggling with is the, is the sense that being aware that the minute you step into language, you are creating a dualistic world because something is one thing and it is not another. Uh-huh. And from a very Buddhist perspective, you know, that, that that's the minute suffering begins uh-huh. and poets you know, we love our suffering because that's where our, that's where our poetry usually begins as well. But it is this, it is that, you know, we can't, we can't lose language at this point. We're so indebted to it. We're, it's such part of our, who we are. Uh-huh. And so it is a pushing against all the time. You know, how, how do we, it's very fluid and flexible, but is it fluid enough to, to arrange and be what we need it to be at all times? And Again, I think it's a particular kind of brain that's always very just focused on the realities of the limits of language and then pushing beyond, you know, if if it's something we create and it's fictional, then surely we can imagine that it can be anything. We can imagine that there must be a word that fits exactly what you're saying because language should work for us ultimately. Uh-huh. 
And I think that's, again, you know, that's just what draws poets kind of together. Yeah. Is that desire. (laughs) That's very cool. That is very cool. I have two big questions that I, topics, whatever, things that I want to have happen in this hour. And and I don't want to wait too long to say one. I want to make sure that, that you share some of your poetry so that in addition to talking about it, that people hear your voice and your words of poetry. And the other is this, this thing that's so on my mind right now, which is how do we create more space for more people who are not white males in this poetic art world? You know, what's it like being a woman and, and, and carving space for you and for other people? Um, people of color, people of different genders, people of different sexual orientations, all those different parts of us. You know, I, I, I see us, when I look at my own community, um, the arts communities around here and others, I see so much kind of segregation that's not um, intentional. And I say that mm-hmm. kind of tentatively. I, I, I don't think people are saying, I want this white cisgender heterosexual male only space. I don't I don't see that as an intent, but I see it as something that that happens a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And and so, as I've thrown that out, it's kind of just to say I know I'm biased towards towards hoping for that kind of conversation. And I want to back up and say, please read us some of your poetry. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right. So, I mean, I think it's a good segue from what we were speaking about. Uh, this new manuscript that I've recently written, one of the things that I look at in the manuscript is this idea of programming. Um, and so we were talking about how language can be a trap and how because we are handed a certain amount of language from the minute that we're born, that language then defines the world as we know it. And even as we kind of believe that we're making choices and that, you know, we're very autonomous in the world, just like you pointed out, when we are in situations where one group has a lot of power and we are given visual imagery and other things to back up that idea, all these things pile up to become the kind of programming of how we see the world, unless we go out of our way then to really push against that. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about making space and so forth. And again, it, it it's, one, I think you can't even begin to have the conversation until you really get uh, realistic about the ways that you have been programmed to see the world in certain ways and how it isn't a truth, that mm-hmm. it is, in fact, the, what has been given to you and that, therefore, you can, you can manipulate and change any of it. You, c- you can rewrite any of it, especially mm-hmm. from a writer poetry perspective. It's, again, it goes back to language. If, if we are constrained... Um, in very dualistic terms, say even by genders, by only having two names for genders, then that becomes the reality of the world. But that isn't the reality per se. That's only what we know so far. And so our programming then becomes like, how do you recognize that is not true? And then how do you push against it? And then how do you then create and imagine a larger sphere that encompasses more people and more inclusivity? And so this this book that I wrote is called Basic Programming um, that will be published next year. 
it talks about uh, attachment theory is one of the things that I look at this, this idea of how we pair up and how we uh, are kind of preoccupied in this country, especially with uh, romantic love and specialized love. Um, and I, it is a book that deals with grief. It deals with my brother's suicide um, because it talks about the idea of attachments from, from romantic perspectives all the way to just our desire to love anyone and what happens when someone dies and what happens to that desire to have someone be embodied. Um, because I think our programming runs so deeply that even our ideas about death and what happens to people after they die become kind of inoculated in us as well. Our beliefs uh-huh. about, you know, there's here and there and heaven and hell and all, you know, all these religious systems, even if you're not a believer and I don't practice any particular religion, I think we live in a country that's so ingrained with certain religious aspects um, like shame mm-hmm. about a lot of things, shame about being human in and of itself, mm-hmm. I think is one of the undercurrents that runs through a lot of the rage and the violence that we see occurring and kind of erupting around us around racism and sexism and sexual assault and predators. I think really a lot of that erupts from a very deep rooted, just shame, um, which unfortunately comes about from these institutions that program us in these certain ways to, to feel things that, you know, maybe naturally we, we don't need to feel. We're just, we just think we've always needed them. We think we've always needed you know, government control, policing, religions, and a lot of it is just is just a program that we're kind of running subconsciously uh-huh. all the time. Uh-huh. Um, so I'll read a couple of, of pieces from this, um, and I think you can see in the piece, this piece I'm going to read, you can see how I'm dealing with kind of the uh, the family trifecta of attachment and how, you know, we have the nuclear family idea, um, and it, it affects us. It affects how we grow and how we think about ourselves. And the and the basic programming, basic programming language kind of runs through the book as like a as a conceit, um, as kind of reminding the readers as they're reading that the poems are are working as a, a kind of coding that's trying to decode in a way a way of thinking about wow. things normally. Yeah. Um, so this is called 130 for preoccupied attachment theory. Hold me, he did one day. That was my father. Here is a secret. His touch is scalding and never enough. That little boys play with guns. My son is so precious most of the time. From your marginalia, incredible music. A generative slow breath married. Fatigue of bones and left out sodden passage. Traipsed tones of disgust. Silly, masking for attention. Bodies goring. Holy precipice, holy as a gifted actor, a queer tinny threshing. Safe is a word of knowing when I mean it. And we are no threat to one another, not now, not ever. We are no threat to one another. That is what a family is, as strong as pack. Programming default. To visit memory is to alter form blank space of I cannot enter. Do you know what happened? How we swallow trauma same to same. Look, look, look. My father read to me all of Tolkien's tales of men, loud vein of she in a sea of. There's a woman who is fearsome and knows your thoughts 
and a woman who kills what no man can. Once upon a time, I was always a little girl body, vulnerable to whatever I was fed. This world does not exhaust our energy. We do it with choices we make. You cannot be asleep and awake. Yes. Yeah. And then I'll read, um, I'll read one more from this manuscript. Um, and the manuscript kind of runs, it's a, it's a book length poem. It's to be read kind of as a whole piece. Um, and it really moves from the first section being about more romantic attachment and, and love in that sphere. Um, the middle section is kind of a deconstruction of, of Wuthering Heights, which is one of my childhood favorite books that, about toxic love. <laughs> okay. Between, yeah, between Heathcliff and Kathy. Um, because I'm looking at in the book uh, the things that we are most influenced by when we're young. You know, when we're young, these kind of these things we pick up and we begin to kind of emulate or, you know, we, at a cellular level, we just kind of, they feed us and they stay with us throughout our lives. And maybe we don't even realize it. Yeah. But I believe for me, Wuthering Heights was one of those books that uh-huh. I, I read and I thought, wow, like that's, that's the ultimate love. And it wasn't until much later as an adult, I read it and was like, wow, this is really toxic and abusive <laughs> and terrible. <laughs> Why did I think that? Yes. Um, and then the book, the book ends more with, um, with more elegy and, and talking about the loss of my brother and having a sibling. Um, there's just the two of us. And so having a sibling who suffered from the same mental illness that I do, but who chose to commit suicide and kind of coming to terms with that kind of attachment uh, post him being in this world, in this plane, you know, how we're still attached in a lot of ways, but no longer in the, in the normal way of being embodied one of us. And so this poem is um, from a later part of the book, um, which is a little bit more about elegy and, and death and bodies. It's called 50 Prayer. Everything outside body, anything inside body, anything that traverses a body from inner to outer, breath, void, smell, sense that someone is watching you while you sleep and may touch your ankle. They from beneath bed, it exposed off edge that there is a race, a lost child, and it's watching you from a corner of a room. And that's not your baby crying when you hear that crying. And I hear that crying. And when you lose your mind, do you know you've lost your mind like that woman who knew her kid was possessed by demons? What do they really put in those drugs? How do you know if you're really sick? What if Scientology is right? There is no mental illness. What would it be like to snap? Is that baby still in a bath? Did you remember to take this child out of that car seat? That knot, that's a tumor, that's appendicitis, that's a cyst, that's an ectopic pregnancy, that's a muscle they cut that will never heal. What if you hurt yourself? Or someone else? What if you wake up with blood on your hands? Where are the children? What if you do have to kill someone? What if someone touches you? What if you fall down? What if you never do anything? What if everyone else gets what they want and everyone wonders what happened to her and they feel sorry for you and then they make excuses and then they say, well, what can you expect from someone like that? And they lock you up and take away sharp things and then you forget your name and everything else. Can you see me? So that's uh <laughs> wow again that's uh yeah that's uh, I mean it's it, good. it takes me it takes me to places that um as as I mentioned I'm a mental health social worker and in so many ways what you said 
earlier on about language and poets is true, I think, with people who do work with people through talk and listening and that that poem that you just shared resonates so much to me with people, one person in particular who I've known for decades now and met as a person who was so, life was very disrupted because of ongoing traumatic experiences of a kind that nobody wants to know happened. And so for me, that poem you just shared is speaking literal truths for people who I love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm sitting here with tears in my eyes. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. I mean, I think yeah. in order to write this book, you know, in order to really write this, I, I, I started meditating a lot again and I, and I ended up doing a lot of practices that were healing practices in order to get to a depth of space uh, with healing and with being really, like you said, being able to speak that truth of, Uh of how deeply trauma can run. And I was really interested in my own family line of how deep trauma runs and how it almost in a way can end up, you know, with my brother committing suicide, that not being an act of just his own personal autonomy, but it being a culmination of decades of family, you know, DNA, trauma of addiction and abuse and things that we store. And it goes back into that idea of programming that we don't always know what we carry in ourselves at a cellular level. We, We really, we see our eye color and our hair color very easily but what we don't see are the secrets and the things that families over generations kind of deposit again and again. And if it's not unearthed, if it's not uncovered, it's just festers there. And so programming this book for me was also a, a self healing method of, you know, how do I go deep enough to really pull up and uncover things and not be afraid to say them and to, and to expose them because then my job, I think as a poet, is to be that scribe, that taskmaster scribe to the world, which is, I'm going to say it so that others don't have to, or so that they can see it and know that uh-huh. it's okay to say it. Yes. I mean, that's to me, being a poet is, is not a job. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, it's what I was born into this world to do. And I it's take it very are. seriously. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's how I see my work is who I am. I can't mm-hmm. let go of this is how I see the world and what I need to be doing. And I get these reminders with things that happen with people that I've encountered and worked with. And, and it's like, this is, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, yeah. And, and so I, I get that. And, and yeah, I, I am, in some sense, speechless about the power of the words that you shared in in those two poems from that manuscript and what you're saying about your writing. I'm very appreciative. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think when my brother committed suicide, I think one of the early things I remember thinking is, is not necessarily that I wanted to write about it as much as I knew that I did not want it secreted in any way. 
I didn't want it made to not be a thing that happens and it happens because we're human and it happens because there is suffering and it happens because, you know, we haven't, you know, I think it happens because in one way we don't know why it happens and that's why it happens, but also it's a constant path that we're all on trying to understand how do we connect and how do we, uh, learn from suffering and how do we help each other in that suffering and again I think poetry for me is one means of doing that but it's yeah. it's a it's a tool that's for a larger life skill of my role as providing space for people to read their work is allowing people to stand on a stage and to be heard and to be seen and that visibility to me is a very powerful aspect of poetry it's it's allowing people to take up space in the world as we spoke of, you know, mm-hmm. who's taking up space and who and who gets that privilege. And I think everyone, you know, we're way, way more alike than we are different, regardless mm-hmm. of the costumes that we get in this lifetime. We're way more alike. And we need to know that people want to hear our truth. I think mm-hmm. it's just an integral part of our species and the reason we as a species clamor towards language, you know, is not only as historians would have us believe because we want to like keep track of debt and keep track of who sold grain to who, but it's, it's, it's deeper than that because some of the earliest language we have is not only record keeping, but it's also prayers, you know, prayers to the gods, uh-huh. you know, is our old, our oldest, you know, writing is, is, is poetry and it's these prayers and it's this information and it's this, it's this sharing experience shared experience of being human mm-hmm. is is really so so it's our history it's it's who we are you know at the oldest oldest written level it's who we are is this sharing of experience of being human and so to be in that lineage is when you're doing it it's like you're paying homage to your ancestors in a way you're saying like i'm going to continue this practice of sharing what it means to be human it, it's part of what allows us to survive the actual experience of being human in a way yeah, yeah. Just that. <laughs> <laughs> but that's it, you know. Other than that, it's all it's also fun. <laughs> I like poetry because you know, there's no deadlines, no nothing, nothing terrible happen if I write a bad poem. <laughs> I can I can go on with my day. It's okay. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it's all true. <laughs> It's all true. It's all it's all as deep as as deep as you want it to go, and also yeah. you know, as, and also it's just like us, you know. It's just it's just joy and fun, and it's you know yeah. celebrating being alive. It's, it doesn't yes. it doesn't always have to shatter everything. <laughs> it's just, it's just, yes. is this beauty? Yes. And as you've talked about, you know, this is who you are. I I do wonder when when did you realize writing is that's part of who I am I need to be doing this um I was pretty young I think I I mean I have a very um I I believe in reincarnation you know I believe we come in lifetime after lifetime after lifetime and I think people are honed in some ways to just do certain things you know and Mm -hmm if you're kind of open to that and you're also born into a situation that allows that support. And I was, you know, born into a situation where my parents 
when I said, you know, when I was seven, eight years old and was like, I need a typewriter because I'm a writer. <laughs> they were like, yeah. okay. <laughs> okay. And, you know, and of course, at first they bought me like a really kind of jinky, you know, toy <laughs> typewriter. And I was, you know, at, in my room day and night, like cranking out these things. And I think at some point they were like, wow, she was serious. <laughs> she really is a writer. We better get her a nicer typewriter. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's just always who I've been. I don't know anything other than that. Okay. existence and I I mean I often joke I wear all these different roles and hats and I'm you know I'm a mom to three kids and a publisher and an organizer and I do a lot of roles and I can go somewhere and, and take off all of those roles except for the role of poet I don't think that I travel uh-huh. or go anywhere or could hide anywhere and, and lose that one that one role would still be with me the role uh-huh. of poet yeah. that's the one I can't really shake in this lifetime uh-huh <laughs> that's very cool. Yeah. I want to go in a different direction because I do. You have mentioned your brother and your brother died of suicide. Mm-hmm. I would like you to share some about your brother in life. In Let my life? In your brother when he was alive. Let us meet your brother a bit. Tell us so uh. that we know more about him than... He's Megan Burns' brother who died of suicide. Uh, so my brother's name was Dylan. And in this, this latest manuscript that I was writing, the, so it was an interesting story. So my brother's name is Dylan. He was named after Bob Dylan, one of my father's favorite musicians. Uh-huh. And years and years ago, before he died, he died th- about three years ago. And before he died, I started writing this manuscript where I was deconstructing Wuthering Heights using the lyrics of Bob Dylan in this really bizarre way. And I, I wasn't sure why I was doing it or, or what the point of the text was. And I couldn't really get it to work. And I put it away. And then after he died, um, I started writing this basic programming manuscript. And I went back and I took out that text of Wuthering Heights with the Dylan lyrics. And that's when it all kind of kind of came together for me. It was like, oh, I was writing this thing and I didn't know why I was even writing it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, here it, it all, you know, I think part of the job of being a poet is, is understanding a, a lot of patternicity and a lot of the way things connect in the world, mm-hmm. even before they actually do connect. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was like, oh, this all fits together in this story. And a lot of my book is about the idea of understanding our lives as stories. Um, understanding the roles that we play in the stories of our own lives. And in writing about Bob Dylan, it took me back to writing about my brother. It took me back to my father. It it became like all this pattern that all weaved together, you know, with me being kind of the central point of how it's weaving together. But the idea of being a part of a story, um, I think when my brother committed suicide, one of the ways that I healed was by really, having a, a different relation, not, not feeling like he had died, but having a different relationship with him. Um, we were eight years apart. He was eight years younger than me. Um, so I was kind of out of the house as a teenager growing up mm-hmm. and we became friends more as adults and we both suffered from addiction. We both, um, had, we suffered from depression. We both were, you know, diagnosed with severe depression. Um, and, I think just our experiences of the world were different. One, because I was a woman and he was a man, mm-hmm. you know, one, because I, you know, was a poet and had this, you know, drive to have a really 
uh, advanced education and get into writing and so forth. And he got more into, you know, he, he just kind of never found what he most loved, but he got super into martial arts for a while. He was really into Taekwondo. And as we got older, we got, we were both really into fitness and, you know, we'd have these really great, we would run races together and we would have, you know, when he was sober, um, we would have these great conversations about the trauma of our childhood and growing up in the way we did. He was like the one person that understood, you know, your sibling is the only person that really understands what you went through as a child because they were in the same household. But we also did grow up in different households because right. we were eight years apart. Yes, I grew up in a household with two parents. Um, my, our parents got divorced when he was five. So he, he grew up in a household with divorced parents his whole life. You know, he had a different experience of that. I was, you know, 12 or 13 when they got divorced. So I just, we were alike in many ways and then also very different. And it wasn't right. until after he died that I really sat with a lot of those truths of, you know, how intricately linked we are via blood and DNA and experience, but also how very different our stories are. And for me, the healing aspect came about in the fact that our story is this ongoing story of his character being someone that, you know, literally, you know, died in this experience of this lifetime, that he, he mm -hmm. suffered so much that he had to relieve that suffering by choosing this path of leaving, but in doing so created, you know, something for me to also learn from an experience. And so it's this kind of continued conversation where, um, again, and this is just my personal belief system, like I, I don't believe in heaven or hell. I believe that, you know, people just, that energy continues. And so I don't feel separated from him, except for the fact that he's not in a body. Mm -hmm. um, and writing this book was a way for me to really make a connection with him. Um, and so there, there are poems towards the end of the book that talk about this really specifically. They talk about the experience of he and I being in a story where we are learning in our own ways, you know, how to navigate living um, and that his experience of having committed suicide has, has shown me so much. And because of that, now it feeds into my writing and it becomes, you know, it's just like it's this ongoing story rather than the idea of like oh, when someone commits suicide, their life is over and that's it. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you're just the person, you know, ha who has a relative or a lover or a spouse or someone who has committed suicide, that, that's not the end of the story. That, that mm -hmm. in a lot of ways is just the beginning of the story, actually. Like that's, mm -hmm. that's the beginning of a new story. And if, I think if you're, if you're willing to be really open to um, dropping some of that programming that we receive around how much suffering, you know, we need to experience, I think that, I think in a lot of ways, one of the realizations I came to was that just suffering in itself can be absolutely worthless. Mm -hmm. um, that in fact, you know, if we are able to accept suffering, if we're able to accept that we're not going to understand the whole story, like, you know, I don't, I don't know my my family history, you know, a thousand, 2000 years back, any more than I know what's going to happen 2000 years in the future. So I don't know the whole story. I'm, I'm a tiny little piece of it. Uh -huh. And that I think it just allows for a surrender to the largeness of everything around us. And, and that our suffering oftentimes comes from our, our grasping, our grasping for things to be the way we want them to be <laughs> in the way that we want the story to go. Mm -hmm. And so my experience with my brother is that he was, you know, he was this amazing young man who was given a lot of 
trials and tribulations and traumas throughout his life. And for whatever reason, at some point, um, you know, he just, he just needed relief from that suffering, but yeah. because of that choice created a ripple effect, you know, throughout our family and the community and everything at large that has created a situation for people to choose either more suffering or to choose great, great healing. Mm-hmm. And I think that my mother and I, we've, you know, we've chosen a lot of healing in that regard. Me being able to write magnifies that in a way because then I'm able to propel that healing forward to a lot of people um, when they have read. And my third book also is about my brother's suicide. And I've had people read that and say, and it's a much darker, harder book because I wrote it really right after he committed suicide. But I've had people read it who said, you know, you, under, you, you said exactly what I felt. If they've had someone close mm-hmm. to them commit suicide, they've said, you, you've captured it. You know, you said exactly what I felt. It's, it's a very unmooring experience. It's a very, um, I think, because we're so evolutionary, you know, wise, just we, we want to, to be alive and to live is just so, so innate to us that, that suicide versus uh, another type of death is, is just so dismantling to our way of what should be. Mm-hmm. And so because of that particular feeling that it causes, I think people need to know that they're just, it's not, um, they're not going to break apart because of that. That in fact, that like, you, you know, it, it is just part of the story of being human, you know, that some yes. of us, you know, we choose to come here. Ultimately, I believe that we choose our parents, we choose to come here, we choose to be in this life, and we choose if we want to stay every single day. Every day mm-hmm. you just choose. Do you want to be here or do you not want to be here? And it's just part of this this story. <laughs> and if you're not here and you're you know and you're somewhere else in another plane, then we as embodied people choose you know do I want to invite that energy in from that person and still have that connection with them? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's not part of maybe our larger Western understanding of the way all that works. But for me personally, I mean it's really have seen it work mm-hmm. in my own life. <laughs> but yeah. And first, I want to ask you, which of the books is the book that you were referring to as the book that um, you wrote soon after his death that's mm-hmm. um, a little different in tone than the upcoming basic program? So um, Commitment is um, a book that I published in 2015 with Lavender Inc. And Commitment, I wrote, I was actually going through a really, really traumatic divorce at the time, I was fighting for custody of my kids and my, my ex-husband at the time, uh, well, still my ex-husband, but my ex-husband at that time went to the court and told them that he wanted full custody of the kids because I had depression and because I suffered from suicidal tendencies in my depression that I was going to kill the kids. And the court oh. awarded him based on his word alone, regardless uh, of my psychiatric history regardless of, you know, me being in psychiatric care and having been on medication years, the court just listened to him because he was, you know, a white man, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah. they listened to him. They took my kids away. I had supervised visitation with them. I spent nine months going to court and proving to them that I was a sane and good parent. And I had been the primary caregiver their entire lives. And, and just mm-hmm. based on his, his word and the bias that we have against people who have mental illnesses, um, the court, you know, just they hear mental illness, they hear suicide, and they just rational thinking goes out the window. 
Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, obviously you're, you're going to kill your kids because you have depression. Mm-hmm. You know, that was their logic. Um, they also based it on the work that I do, which is as an, not only being a poet, but I also make um, installations with my poetry. I do a lot of performance art with my poetry. And so I take dolls. And I've been doing this since 2012 when I was married with my husband. He, he was very well aware of this and knew that this is part of a project that I do. And I, I take dolls and I put poems inside them or around them and create these performances that use the dolls as personas, sometimes for women artists or personas, motifs for ideas about hysteria, perhaps. Or, you know, I have about 15 or 16 different of these dolls that I've performed with and he went to court and showed the court these dolls that were, in some cases, you know, I'd taken them apart, taken their arms and legs off or created other, you know, art installations with them. And he somehow convinced the court that that's, you know, what I was going to do to our children. Oh, my God. Yeah. So my book, Commitment, <laughs> um, deals with this idea of mental illness. And then in the, in the midst of this, my brother committed suicide while I was going into divorce. And so it deals with this kind of this double whammy of my life, which is the reality that I had a sibling that committed suicide and the reality that I was also being put on trial for being a suicidal person and didn't deserve to be a mother because of that. Um, so again, yeah, commitments of, it's a very difficult book. It's really hard. It's really dark. Um, but I've had people read it who've had those experiences and who've suffered with mental illness or who have had people close to them who've committed suicide. And they've said, you know, it's stuff that needs to be said. Yes. You know, the stigma around all of it needs to be removed because we're all human. We're all suffering. Yes. You know, if we continue to put everything in the closet and secret everything, it again, it just festers. It just, it yes. makes it scary. And it's not scary. It, you know, it's, it's weird to say like, oh, suicide should not be scary. But it shouldn't be scary because it's an option every one of us has every day. And it's, you know, if we can uncover it and, and speak more truthfully and humanly about it, it creates an ability for us to not be so, when we're afraid of things, they have such power. They have exactly. such power over us. And yes. we need to remove the fear. Right, right. You're not saying more people should die of suicide. You're saying we need to be able to talk openly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think anytime we're afraid of something, our natural human instinct, whether it's suicide or even divorce or child abuse, anything, it's like Mm -hmm. our natural reaction is to like, okay, run away. I don't, I don't want that to touch me. I don't want it near me. I'm scared of it. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't make it go away. Exactly. (laughs) At all. That's not a recourse at all. If anything, it isolates the people who may be suffering because you're turning away from them. And it also creates an ignorance and denial within yourself so that when it does touch you, and in most of our lives, it will touch us at some point. I think it's incredibly ignorant, you know, to believe that you're going to go your whole life and not have someone close to you commit suicide or suffer from the desire to. And so why not arm yourself in the same way that we, you know, we tell kids, you know, arm yourself, stranger danger, but we're strangers. You know, we talk about certain things that we feel safe talking about, yes. but we don't talk about other things. And those are the very things that are going to, you know, come in and undermine us and make us weak and, and take yes. our power away and, and be even harder to get over when they do happen because we don't have the resources and the skills and to know that we can survive these things. Yeah. Yeah. I want to push on you to share 
some lovely story about your brother in life. Tell okay. us something fun about your brother, about just to give us a picture of this part of who Dylan is in life. Um, <laughs> my brother, like I said, he, he got into Taekwondo, I guess right after he finished high school. Um, he got really interested in taking Taekwondo and then he started working at this studio. And when my children, my oldest now, who's 15, I believe she was like five or six. So he used to teach small children Taekwondo and he, and he had, um, growing up, he had ADD. And so he was that kid, you know, not only was he my pesky little brother, but he was also this pesky little brother who was bouncing off the walls most of the time uh-huh. and like, you know, talked nonstop and, and was always breaking things and just, you know, was going a million miles a minute and like, mm-hmm. you know, didn't have good boundaries. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, was just, he was that ADD kid, that typical kid that gets, you know, the teacher says that kid probably has ADD and he did. Um, and he didn't do very well in school and stuff. And, and so, you know, academics was never going to be his, his branch, but he got into Taekwondo and I think because he was so into it, a lot of, um, he got into teaching young kids um, because a lot of young kids who have ADD or ADHD, oftentimes pediatricians or other caregivers will say, you know, get them into a martial art. It really helps with their self-control, their ability to listen. You know, they have to, they're using some of those skills in the, in the classroom, but they're, they're having fun in the Taekwondo too, and they're getting out that energy, that kind of mm-hmm. pent up energy that they're, they're not having to sit still on a desk all day. Right. And so he got into teaching these young kids and he was great at it. And he was a big guy. He was like, I'm little. I'm like five feet tall. My brother was a foot taller than me. He was six feet and he yeah. was this big guy and he could be very intimidating, but you know, he was like a teddy bear and the kids loved him, you know, cause he could be both very intimidating, but he had a really good heart. And I think he, he, um, he identified with them as being these, you know, oftentimes he would get this room full of kids and none of them were listening. They're jumping all over the place. They're just, they were like him, you know, they had trouble just falling in line and, you know, being this, you know, little obedient robots, <laughs> they were not going to do that at all. And my daughter uh, took Taekwondo with him as well. And I think one of my favorite videos that I have of the two of them is she did it for three or four years and went up in her belt and everything and got to the point where she was sparring. And there's this great video of her at like seven or eight years old, just, you know, I took behind a glass watching the two of them spar. And she's now this young woman, you know, this like really confident, just smart, intelligent woman. And it's like, I can see, you know, for her, I think the death hit her the hardest of my three children because she had this relationship with him. And you can see in the sparring studio, you know, he's being aggressive with her in a way that I think women need to experience aggression sometimes for men. They need to know that they can defend themselves. They need to experience aggression in safe spaces Mm -hmm. where they can feel empowered. And I I mean, I just love this video of the two of them because it's him being teacher mode of just, you know, coming at her, you know, spar, hit me, you know, you're not hitting hard enough, like be aggressive. And then, you know, and then in a second, when the, when the sparring is over, there's that split second, you know, where he turns back into Uncle D, as, as she would call him, Uncle D, where okay. he's just, you know, goofing off with her and just uh, like, that was awesome. Uh, uh, um, and, you know, and, the, and I, you know, I think as with any situation with suicide, I think anger 
masks deep, deep sadness. And so my anger at my brother has always been, I've always been aware that my anger at his choice comes from the time that he's missed. The fact that he could have continued to be this really powerful male role model in my children's lives. Uh Um, That's, you know, it's, it comes out as anger, but I know it's, I know it's just regret and deep, deep sadness um, from what I personally would have wanted it to be what I imagined it could have been. Yes. And then another part of me has had to accept that, you know, when someone's suffering so badly that they choose to leave this world, that it's very selfish of me to think that I in any way would know if he would, you know, what, what kind of life would he be having? If I just selfishly was like, well, you should have stuck around because you could have done this for my kids. You know? yeah, yeah. And so it's, you know, it's, it's always a strange balance. Of yeah. Just surrendering and saying, you know, I, I don't know. I don't yeah. know why it happened. I don't know if, you know, I can't ever say if it was good or bad. You know, those are such paltry words. And as a poet, they're my least favorite words in the world. Mm-hmm. Things aren't good or bad. They just, they just are. And, yeah. you know, we're just here in the moment with them. <laughs> Yes. Well, I so appreciate this conversation and listeners, I want you to remember this has been Megan Burns. She is based in New Orleans. You can find her books through Lavender Inc. And the new one, Basic Programming, will be coming out during 2018. You can head down to New Orleans for the Poetry Festival, meet her there, all kinds of opportunities. And, and Megan, this truly has been an honor and, and the, the personal nature of you know, your stories about your family, the way of talking about how important and valuable poetry is. You know, there's so much that you've shared in this hour. I, I can't thank you enough. And, and again, a shout out to Todd Cirillo for being the one to bring us together. And, and I also want to thank Daniel Smith, who produces the show, because he's the one who lets people hear this conversation. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Megan. Thank you. And so long to our listeners. <laughs>